You are listening to Witness Essentials, Episode 5. This episode is all about experts. We start with your preparation to give an opinion as an expert. Expert opinions are allowed in our courts and tribunals in order to assist lay people to reach the correct understanding where, without that expert opinion, they would not be able to understand or draw the correct inferences from the data that is coming into evidence through other means. Your participation as an expert witness is only worthwhile if the decision maker both trusts you and your opinion. Decision makers are always worried that the so-called expert may in fact be an expert for hire. That is someone who will give an opinion for a price or for some other favour, such as being accepted by their work colleagues. The problem for the decision maker is is that if they accept false opinion, they won't know that it is false and that false opinion will adversely affect the quality of the rest of their decision making process. Let's look at some examples of where things can go wrong. In the case of an opinion being given for a price, the best example is the expert who, having written their report and signed it, then changes their conclusions, or at least waters them down, at the request of the client or the client's lawyer. A good example of giving an opinion for a favour expected are forensic scientists in criminal work who provide the opinions that the investigating detectives want even when they know that the science shows that opinion or opinions to be wrong. Some instances of such wrongdoing include telling a jury that traces of human blood have been found in an object when all the proper tests that were done show that there was no blood found. Another is giving evidence that the DNA found at the crime scene was left there as a secondary deposit, by which is meant that the DNA did not come directly from the person who had that DNA, but was rather transferred from that person to some other person or object and thence came to be left at the crime scene. The claim that a second deposit would be okay until one knows that the first written opinion of that scientist which was not disclosed by the police to the prosecution, was that the deposit was definitely a primary deposit, that is, that it was left there by the person with that DNA profile. Yet another example is giving evidence to the fact finder that a handwritten note in a diary was made at a later date than other writings on the page where that note was written, when there was no evidence to support that claim and there was other evidence known to the police that the entry was made on the date indicated on the page. 
I do wish that these were made up examples. Sadly, they're not. Decision makers can also be worried that the supposed expertness is simply junk science. A telling example of such junk science has been the too ready acceptance by lawyers and trial judges of evidence given by technicians as to the value of telephone call charge records as showing the location of a mobile or cell phone at a particular time or times. Such evidence, if accepted, is a great way to link that phone with the suspect, with the crime scene or other relevant location. There are a number of problems with those claims, but the ones that I want to focus on now are, first, that the technicians are not adequately trained to explain how such calls are picked up and routed through the communication system. Secondly, that the technicians do not understand the basic scientific approach of testing the, quote, null hypothesis, unquote. And third, that too many trial judges and too many trial lawyers do not understand those two basic limitations. To illustrate these problems, suppose that the police investigators allege that suspect A was at point X at a given time. As it happens, A is telling everyone, including the police, that at that time he was at point Y. So the police investigators get a technician from the phone company to go to point X. Now this is some time after the crime. And the technician makes a number of phone calls from point X, of which around 15% are picked up by the sector on the transmission tower of interest. Unfortunately, the technician is allowed to give that evidence as supporting the prosecution case that suspect A was at point X, not at point Y. Now that claim is rubbish. It has no value whatsoever. For the testing to have any value at all, the technician needed to also go to point Y and make a number of phone calls to see how many, if any, went through that same sector or another sector on that transmission tower or other towers. The technician never went to point Y and neither the prosecution or the police or the defence ever thought to make an issue of it. Now, these problems are not trivial matters. Innocent people are convicted because the fact-finders, jurors or a judge alone, accept rubbish in place of good science. That this happens flows from the inadequate preparation and knowledge of those lawyers whose task it is to test the value of the science through rigorous cross-examination. However, where those who are doing the cross-examination lack the time, the expertise or the intellect to prepare such a cross-examination, then miscarriages of justice are the likely result. 
to reduce the likelihood of fact-finders and lawyers being duped. A code of practice for experts has been developed. It's been around now for some 30 years. Some courts, but sadly not all, have made compliance mandatory. When you're engaged to give an expert opinion, then it is essential that you are familiar with the principles in that expert witness code of conduct before you start work. You can find that code on the website of those superior courts that require formal compliance. Although there are some changes in wording, the principles are the same across all the codes. Should you work where the code does not apply, then let me share with you the four principles which should guide any litigation opinion work that an expert does. First, your overriding duty is to the court or tribunal. Any obligations to a party paying your fee are secondary and they're trumped by your overriding duty to help the court. Second principle, you must disclose not only all the data that you've been given, but the data that you wanted but was not made available to you, whatever the reason for its non-availability. Third, you must use a methodology that is widely accepted by your peers and is fit for the purpose that you're using it for. And finally, you must give a statement of conclusions and consequences that neither overstates nor understates the strength of the opinion and which sets out any limitations that you have to the outcomes that you express. You should explicitly include in your written report that you know about and have followed the code, as that is the only way in which those using the report, which is especially those decision makers, can hope to see both transparency and replicability in the work that you've done. Moving on from the code and going to another fundamental. It is essential that if you're going to offer an expert opinion, that you offer the opinion within your recognised field of expertise. Now it happens from time to time that experts have an excellent understanding of allied fields. Indeed, they may need to have such um, understanding in order to be proficient in what they do. However, that understanding does not of itself demonstrate that you have the requisite level of knowledge and training to offer an opinion upon which lay people should rely. To give an example, a top-rate forensic pathologist should not attempt to interpret blood spatter as the evidence about interpretation of blood spatter, let's say, on the walls or floor or other services around where a body is found, is a quite separate discipline to that of the forensic pathologist. It is usual for a plaintiff in a civil case or prosecutor in a criminal case to provide a copy of any expert report to the other side sometime before the hearing. Now, if you've written such a report, then it must be set out so that all the lay users find it accessible and informative. Let me remind you 
that those lay unit users are a wide class. Apart from your client and their lawyer, the report is also being relied upon by the other side or parties and their lawyer or lawyers, the judge, decision maker, and if it's a jury trial, all the jurors. Because your communication has to be clear and intelligible, I suggest at least the following. Include an opening summary as well as a closing conclusion. Throughout your report, use neutral headings that are, good, are a good guide as to what's coming. Use visuals wherever possible. Include a glossary that explains special terms that you are familiar with in lay terms so that lay people can understand them. Number the paragraphs with whole numbers and only whole numbers. Have a line spacing of 1.5 and a font size of 12 and nothing less. Ensure that your personal record, otherwise known as curriculum vitae, is up to date but only includes information in your career and training that's relevant to this assignment. And finally, be sure to either include or attach the original commissioning letter that sets out the tasks that you've been asked to report upon. Now, when you get into court to give your opinion as an expert and to assist the decision maker, your lawyer needs first to settle you with some questions before any cross-examination begins. Those settling questions can include sharing your experiences and qualifications that demonstrate to the decision maker that you're an ideal person to help them in this case. Be sure at this early point to correct any errors that you find in your report. You're almost bound to find something when you read it on the day of the hearing. This is also the time when you should respond to any contrary opinions that have come from the other side or that you've heard about from other sources because it is so much better to provide that information in your evidence-in-chief rather than it coming out in cross. When you are giving your answers during cross, remember, as we've explained earlier in this series, the use of would you like me to explain so that your lawyer knows what to ask you about on re-examination. However, unlike the situation with the usual lay witness, an expert is much more likely to be asked questions by the decision maker. That means that when you say, would you like me to explain, the cross-examiner may let it pass, but the decision maker may well ask you for that explanation. Sometimes it happens that whilst you're in the witness box, you're asked to do some calculations. Now, should that happen, don't hesitate to ask for time uh, to follow up to gather the information and also ask to be allowed to do those calculations um, outside of the hearing room. There is no reason why you should try and do them in the witness box. Courts and tribunals usually have meeting rooms that you can use, and if necessary, you can tell your lawyer 
why they need to tell the decision maker that uh, you need an adjournment in order to gather information and or do the calculations. Let's finish where we started with respect to experts, and that is to always keep to the forefront that your overriding obligations are to the court and to no one else. Acting on that instruction, there may be times while you're being questioned by lawyers when you need to turn to the decision maker and say, Your Honour, Tribunal Member, you are being misled by these questions. Can I tell you what should be done? You then abide by whatever answer the decision maker gives. In the earlier episodes 1 to 4, at the end of each episode, we've had some words defined. Uh, there are none to be defined in this episode. That means that you, as an expert, have completed your early preparation to be a witness. And I hope it all goes well in the hearing room. If you expect to be doing quite a bit of expert opinion work, then I suggest that you visit unisearch.com.au, the details of which are given in the notes to this podcast, and join one of their online one-day workshops. That will make you far better prepared. Meantime, as I asked at the beginning of the series, if you've now found it useful, please tell others about it, because the more witnesses who are better prepared, the better our legal system. With that, all the best and goodbye.